everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. We've been doing a short series in Romans 8 the past few weeks, and we've been getting a lot of questions on the Holy Spirit as a result. We decided to have our lead pastor, Nick Gibson, talk with an old friend, Adam Mabry, to help us all understand the work of the Holy Spirit a little bit better. You might remember Adam from last year's Sexuality Everywhere conference, but Nick provides a very thorough introduction of Adam in case you don't know him. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, this is Nick Gibson, Senior Pastor at High Point Church. Welcome to the Engaged Equip Podcast. Um, today we are going to talk with Floridian Scott Bostonian Adam Mabry. He is uh, has been a church planner in Scotland. Uh, he got kicked out of Scotland. Um, not for drinking, though. He uh, planted a church in Boston about 2010, <laughs> which is about when I came to High Point. So we can compare accomplishments at some point, even though he started with nothing and I started with an $8 million building. Um, and the church has really been vibrant, evangelistic, excellent, and reasonably multi-ethnic. Yes. So um, and is larger than HBC last I knew. So, Although I'm not sure what unreasonably multi-ethnic would be. <laughs> they would be like not multi-ethnic at all, and there's plenty of multi-ethnic people around it. I see. Because okay. like, we kind of say, like, you know, if you're in the middle of Wuhan province, you may not have a highly multi-ethnic church. Like, there is something relative to the the environment you're in. Anyway, that, sorry. That was a little too soon. I'm still introducing you. Just hold on. Adam's an old friend. Though we've never lived in the same place, he's working on a PhD on the Holy Spirit from a Scottish institution, which must be very important. And uh, we're going to talk about various and sundry with pastoring and also specifically with the Holy Spirit, since that's the topic of a good bit of his research. Plus... Adam is also a reformed evangelical charismatic-ish person if he was to fit in a number of boxes, which is fun to talk to. Yeah. So yeah, his church has really vibrant worship. They really believe in the gifts of the spirit, but it's also very grounded, sound, orthodox, biblical. And so I like to talk to Adam when we talk about the Holy Spirit. So Adam, tell us a little bit more about yourself. <laughs> married, four children. Yes. Uh, I, I've been married for 16 years and I have four children. Uh, 15-year-old daughter, 13-year-old daughter, a 10-year-old son, and a 7-year-old son. And I like most of them. <laughs> I can't always reproduce the quote from The Hobbit. I like half of you less... I mean, I can't oh, yeah. remember. It's like, uh, yes. But one the last, second part is I like less than half of you, half as well as you deserve. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. Yeah, I, like right, a good yeah. father so, over the uh, over the uh, COVID nineteen kind of sequestration, I did say I did decide uh, that this would be a, a, an important time to have my ch- children watch the Lord of the Rings extended editions all the way through, um, which uh, was a good gateway drug. So now my son is reading um, reading through them all. So I feel like that's a parenting I'm win. Fellowship of the Ring right now. Yeah, at bedtime. That's cool. A whole podcast could be devoted to what in the heck was going on with the whole Tom Bombadil thing, and how grateful I am to Peter Jackson for not including that trippy part of a, of that book in the movies. But that's for probably probably going to leave some of your listeners in the dust. So, yeah, I mean, you kind of strike me as the kind of person who likes Lost when you say something like that. You know, like um, Tom Bombadil is one of the most important parts of the Fellowship of the Ring. It's it's amazing. His character is extremely important. Okay. All right. I don't want to get into World War One history and blah, 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 <laughs> Tolkien, whatever. We'll just let that pass. All right. Mm-hmm. So um, let's jump into the Holy Spirit stuff. 
And then you're going to have to come back on the podcast probably a number of times for us to wring out of you everything beneficial for our listeners. But um, I think that people, I think people enjoy hearing from somebody other than me. Periodically. Okay. So I want to ask, uh, Jill wrote some really like theological, biblical questions. I want to jump into some like sort of pastoral straightforward stuff because High Point is kind of a weird church and our, even our listeners, some of our leaders, like they never went to a theological church. They don't have a lot of good background. So I want to ask them just pretty pastoral questions. So what are just like, as a pastor and somebody who's becoming a scholar in this, what are just the most important things for Christians to understand about the Holy Spirit? Just like straight away. You should know these six things. I think for me, it's it actually boils down to one thing. And it's something that I got from reading John Owen. Um, he has a lot of really um, quotes that if you, like if someone were to tweet them today, we'd all go, that's a heretic. But because John Owen wrote them, we're like, no, that's probably true. Um, and, uh, and, and one of his quotes is the entire point of the Old Testament was to give us Christ. And the entire point of Christ was to give us the spirit. Like and that quote at, at the beginning of my research um, really like hit me between the eyes. Cause I mean, I, if you'd asked me to like sign on a statement of faith, you know, do you believe that Holy Spirit is super important? I'd be like, yeah, totally. But put in that simple of a like axiomatic way, I, it, it hit me like, hold on, do I believe that? Um, and, and then the more that I kind of reflected on the story of the Bible, I thought, you know, actually, yeah, I, I think I do believe this. Um, not, not at all to that. He's the most important, you know, member of the Trinity. That, that's not what Owen means. And that's not what I mean, but that the point of Jesus living and dying and rising wasn't just so that we could constantly reflect on how born again we are and feel great about being born again. And isn't it great that we're born again? And shouldn't you be born again? The point of being born is to live. And the point of being born again is to live again. And it is only by the Holy Spirit that we live the life for which Jesus died and bled and rose and, and enabled us to be born again. Uh, we are not living in the power of the second person of the Trinity. We're living in the power of the third person of the Trinity, who empowers us with the power of Jesus and, you know, by the father and stuff. So, um, for me, he's the, he's the, the key that unlocks the whole Trinitarian, uh, door for, for the actual life of a Christian. So, um, I, I would say that there's really one thing. Um, and the one thing is we must live in the power of the presence of the Holy spirit. And if we're not, we're, we're missing out hugely on what Jesus came to deliver to us. Okay. Yep. Okay. That's great. So now I'm going to make you expand upon that since it's just one thing. So if somebody hears that and say, okay, we have to live in, right. Mm -hmm. What am I to do with that preposition? Okay. Right. Cause there, if the Holy spirit was a local pool, we would know exactly what that means. (laughs) Right. You know, right. But I think people struggle with, what does it mean to live in the Holy spirit? Yeah. Um, so maybe I can think about it from a, let's go inward out to outward. So there's how I think about the Christian life has to be, I have to think alongside or in conversation or communion with the Holy spirit. 
So what does that mean? Well, obviously I read my Bible and I allow the data of the Bible to begin to reshape the, the way I think and the, and the facts I believe. You know, I, I no longer believe that the universe is just some happy accident. I replace that belief with the, you know, the biblical teaching of, you know, okay, God is the intentional loving creator of the universe, right? That's, that's all well and good and we should do that. But thinking in the spirit is conversational thought knowing that there's always someone else in the room of my mind um, who can commune with me and communicate with me and, and guide my thinking in some way. Um, so there's, there's thinking in the spirit. There's um, there's, I, I would say even emotionally um, my, my heart, like the posture of my heart must be and can be guided by the Holy spirit. So in my, in my sadness and my joy, I find it, even today, as I was spending spending some time with the Lord, I um, I felt deeply convicted by just the, the posture of my heart and uh, over uh, over some situations that that I'm walking through, and and was reminded again. Okay, I am not simply feeling my own emotions. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. He knows me, and He can guide the posture of my heart and empower my emotions to go in a different place. Um, the, the work of my hands, you know, the, the scripture, especially the old Testament talks about how the spirit would come upon people to do mighty works. Um, but the, most of your listeners probably don't know this, but the very first spiritual gift ever recorded is actually the spirit of like craftsmanship. It's uh, like the spirit of Hobby Lobby. Uh, I mean, it's the, it's uh, the, the guys who, you know, yeah. built the temple. Scrap the spirit of scrapbooking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a demonic spirit, I think, because uh, that spirit steals <laughs> a lot of my money each month. Um, uh, okay. So l- let me, I, okay. So I, that's actually a good segue because, um, I don't know how you experience your own consciousness, but there is more going on in my mind a lot of times than just the simple, what I think is my most conscious thought and a clearly distinct consciousness that is present. That sounds a lot like you would expect Jesus to sound like, and there is communion between those two voices. What I instead experience a lot is probably three or four voices that appear to be versions and parts of me, Mm -hmm. my most primal self, my conscience, my most conscious mind, my, those desires wrapped up in my ambitions and my reasoning. And then also temptations, Mm -hmm. which are rooted maybe in the flesh, but also could have demonic influence, biblically speaking. Right. Yeah. And then, and then stuff that I am trying to distinguish as the input of the Holy Spirit. So for people who are like, my inside talk and feels feel more complicated and that's why I get confused. Yeah. How would you pastor them? Um, my, well, I would, I would roll back and say, well, first of all, have you ever, experienced like a a powerful encounter with the person of the Holy Spirit, whereby you were able to go, okay, that was him. And someone actually taught you how to do that. So in much the same way, we teach people before we baptize them, right? Or we teach people before we let them become members, or we teach people how to uh, lead a small group, or we teach people before we let them sing on the worship team or something. Um, this seems to me to be a, a gaping hole um, in in our discipleship processes and, and in most of what I've ever read and been taught about discipleship. So um, I, I would say uh, that the first thing that 
that I would do as a pastor is ask them to come to what, what we call an encounter weekend, uh, which is a, a a part of a whole holistic discipleship process that's um, designed to give someone that initial experience. Um, not that it's the only experience, but but just it's a way it's a way station on the journey. Where we're like, okay, at this point, we're going to talk about what that's like. So I think the the first thing to to pastor someone about that would be okay. First, let's let's practice listening to his voice and 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 actually ask what does the Bible say about that? Because that's obviously a whole huge topic anyway. I mean, there there are Christians that actively teach that Christians should not expect to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Greg Kokel is one of them. He's a he's a um, an apologist. He's kind of a, he's also an odd theological mashup himself, but and, and largely a great guy. I think I think Philip Carey thinks that too. The, yeah. the Lutheran scholar from Eastern. One of his one of the books that I love by him is a book called Good News for Anxious Christians. Hmm. And one of his chapters is you don't have to hear God's voice in your heart or what you how yeah. you can seek and acquire wisdom. Yes, which is standard yes. Lutheran teaching, which is I think very a, a balancing teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we. Um, but I think for those who are like, yeah, but should we hear? What does it mean? Because it seems like the Holy Spirit. Like if you read the Bible, I have a hard time finding passages that prove the Holy Spirit pr- speaks intelligible words that you know are from the Spirit and not from anything else. Mm-hmm. But I don't have trouble finding parts of the Bible that say that the Holy Spirit evokes an internal experience of some kind. Sure. Yeah. Right. So Rom- Romans five says the love of the Spirit sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts. Sure. That's supposed, that means something internal is happening yeah. in a relationship to an encounter of the love of God that is initiated by the Holy Spirit and is happening in us, mm-hmm. right? Romans 8 says that the Spirit intercedes for us in us mm-hmm. in a way, in, in inaudible kinds of groans mm-hmm. so deeply that when God searches our hearts, he finds the will of the Spirit there. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit is operating so deep in us mm-hmm. at the place of our, the depth of our hearts, the depth of our conscience. And so there's an internal experience. Now, when I try to take, look at those scriptures and say, okay, which of those scriptures says the Holy Spirit speaks like intelligible sentences, or we could discern a word message mm-hmm. from the spirit himself. And that that's normative for Christian yeah. life, walking in the spirit, man, I don't, I can't come up with a passage for that. Yeah. Myself. I- I think that, but I don't also don't poo poo people who say that it's happened to them. Yeah, I I hadn't heard of the book nor that, that they shouldn't seek it. Dis- yeah, that, that's well, that's good because a lot of you know since I <clears throat> I have this you know split down the middle of you know pretty reformed and also like very engaged in sort of the global Pentecostal charismatic world, and yeah, there are some yeah, which in is that important to pastor. There's a lot of those guys. Yeah, well, there are a lot of people from that world who think like the life of the Christian is the Holy Spirit's going to tell me like should I buy two percent or whole milk, and uh, what they have to right. remember, what I often tell them is like, hey, uh, there are zero books in the Bible whose exclusive message is about how the Spirit speaks to you, but there are three or perhaps four books in the Bible whose exclusive message is about wisdom. <laughs> so clearly, wisdom is a huge category, and I think the Spirit would like for you to operate with wisdom. In the same way, I don't always want to tell my kids what to do at every point. Like I want them to develop some wisdom, so I don't have to do that. I can just trust that they're developing, and uh, and and that's a category that has to be sometimes rejuvenated in the in the life of especially more okay. more charismatic. Adam, let let's get let's get back to okay. So you're okay. So what do you do on the encounter weekend then? So it's is it more like lab than teaching or like, I mean, what what do you how do you 
Cause you were like, when I was like, okay, so how do you do the in the spirit? And then you were yeah. like, well, we don't teach this. Okay. Stipulated. I'm asking you to teach us. And you're like, we do this experience. No, we do. Okay. We do well, teach it. What, what's the experience? We do teach it, but I, I mean, I can't unpack like a weekend of teaching to you on a podcast, but right, yeah. uh, basically we do, we do uh, a few things. The first thing we do is uh, we believe that the, the greatest miracle the Holy Spirit can do is to regenerate the dead human heart. So the, the first session is is really a gut check, like, hey, have you actually repented and believed the gospel? Is the gospel that you believed the gospel? Or have you come to a place of deep repentance? Because we find that, that, that these weekends uh, sometimes attract a, a kind of person who just wants a, an experience and uh, and uh doesn't want to repent. And, uh, that's, that's not good. Um, Mm -hmm. so this is like version 5.0 that we're on right now. And also this, uh, how to, how to do kind of spirit empowered discipleship is the, is the, uh, like a central point of my doctorate of ministry research, um, from, so, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing those two things in tandem and, and, uh, this is particularly why, because I want to apply all that stuff. I'm studying my PhD in in my actual church. So, uh, so, so Session you're doing one. you're doing two doc two doctorates? Yes. Yeah. You yeah. Know, okay. I, you already knew that. I mean, you. I mean, I knew that. Sorry. I don't think you so. already knew that. Yeah. It's fine. You've you've mocked me for this before, but I'm glad you can forget. And no, I remember. think I mocked you just for doing the one PhD. Yeah. But yeah. Well, I mean. Anyway, so yeah, so that you you make sure people have experienced regeneration yeah, because yeah. the regeneration is a miraculous work of the yeah. spirit. Then, then we have to yes. do. And so then, then we, then it's a lab, then we break up into small groups and, uh, and small group, th- those leaders have instructions kind of, uh, how to, how to lead that moment. And, uh, and then the following session is, um, a teaching on, okay, what is, what is the expectation for the Christian life in relationship to the spirit? So we talk about, um, <clears throat> how Christians are to live, uh, and the big idea of that particular, um, session is, um, the Holy spirit gives gifts and fruits for disciples to make disciples. Um, and so that, that's the big idea. And so we, it's a long bit of teaching. And, uh, so who's the Holy spirit? What, what are spiritual gifts? What are spiritual, what is spiritual fruit? And how does that stuff live in the life of the Christian? So then basically we lead them through, uh, a, an experience of, uh, being filled with the Holy spirit. We take the view that, uh, the baptism of the Holy spirit points to a thing that happens like at Pentecost. Um, uh, and we, we opt into that thing when we repent and believe, but we're commanded to be being filled with the spirit, Ephesians five. So we say, you know, so we're going to pray for you to be filled more with the Holy spirit. And, uh, and the idea there is to teach them, like you should be constantly praying for this yourself and you can pray for other people. So you don't need to come to this magical weekend to get a magical experience. This is just like, we're, we're going to show you how to do it. And then you can do it. Um, yeah, and, so, uh, let me interject something in within um, Pentecostal bigotry uh, or anti-Pentecostal bigotry. I remember I used to think it was so condescending when Pentecostal churches used to call themselves full gospel churches. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I am theologically opposed to second filling theology, which is like you get saved and then sometime later there's this completely different experience with the Holy Spirit. And that sure. has to, right. Yeah. I think what, what is happening, like having read Romans 8 much more carefully and I've already thought something like this, but as I read Romans 8 a little more carefully, I've, I'm increasingly convinced of the idea that if you preach Christ and don't, and nobody ever hears of the Holy Spirit, then it's possible for the person to get saved and have no idea about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
Hmm. And so they have the spirit. They've been technically baptized in the spirit because if they're if they're converted, yeah. But they don't even know that they can be free of the law of the of death that they can overcome indwelling sin, and that part of the heritage of experiencing regeneration is this overwhelming presence of the spirit that gives an incredible new power Mm. so that they can have have the mind of the spirit and put to death the mind of the flesh so that they won't die but instead live Mm -hmm. and i I, and so i think the charismatic person when they're like hey you should receive the spirit some i think in old pentecostal terms that was like a whole different thing but it's just like you just got the rest like like you just got the rest of the gospel and the Mm. problem was the preacher yeah. That the preacher didn't preach the whole gospel. They preached Romans one through four yeah. and maybe the beginning of five. And then yeah. they just kind of quit on you. And yeah. that's stupid. And so, you know, if, if if that's what you do, you you get a you get a Romans seven spirituality, which is this wretched man that I am, I can never overcome in dwelling sin. Can anything deliver me from this body of death? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so <clears throat> yeah, I'm so I think that I think for some Christians, maybe some listening to this who have a, like a good old Baptist background, you, you've got to believe in you know if we believe in the scriptures, you believe in Romans one through sixteen, not Romans one through four. Yeah, totally. Right? And and I think that's I think that's really important. So I don't. This isn't like a oh my gosh, where's this theology come from? This is Romans eight theology. This is and it's critical. I mean, the, the Romans eight argues that if you don't accept Romans eight, you don't go to heaven. You go to hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of the, what I hope an outcome of my whole life's work will be is a, a better way or a new way for Christians, English speaking and reading Christians to think about and be taught about the role of the spirit. Because I think there are good ch- church historical reasons for this, like why this is a problem for us. <clears throat> Just if you, you know, kind of the last thousand years of Christian history, and depending on what camp you landed up in and where you came to faith, uh, you're just going to be taught something very different about the spirit. Not because, not because they're actually different versions of the truth, but you know, you can imagine that it's really hard for a reformed Christian in the 18th century to want to talk a lot about the, what feels like the mystical power of the spirit, because uh, he's running, you know, as fast as he can get away uh, from, you know, this Catholic, you know, what seems like magic to him, where the power of the spirit is somehow contained in in objects like icons. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you you get this like hard, hard impulse toward a, a kind of cessationistic uh, anti-supernaturalism um, within within good Bible believing, you know, large, you know, uh, Protestant Christianity. And, and so that's kind of our heritage. So it's not surprising that, that Christians who want to be faithful to the Bible are re- really side-eye uh, the Holy Spirit. It, it makes sense. Um, right. But can I, I clarify agree. a definition? Yeah. We should clarify what cessationism means. Cessationism yeah. doesn't mean that the spirit no longer works. It means that the spirit no longer works interactively in a way that is self-authenticating and like, understandable that the Christian knows the Holy Spirit is doing that, that you, that you feel and know you're interacting with the Holy Spirit himself, as opposed to the Holy Spirit infusing something or illuminating some truth. So a cessationist would believe that the Holy Spirit can infuse preaching and lead to regeneration and salvation. Mm -hmm. The the cessationist believe the Holy Spirit can illuminate 
as you read the Bible so that you can see the message that's in the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. But they, they don't believe the Holy Spirit himself does things in human beings on his own by his own right, like give gifts and speak. Yes. They're particularly uh, anxious about the uh, revelatory kinds of spiritual gifts. Um, right. So yes, yeah. I, I'm obviously not a cessationist, but, uh, um, but yes, uh, that, but there's, I mean, it, an interesting question is to ask is, well, why did that view only grow up within Protestantism and not within Orthodox Christianity or Catholic Christianity? And uh, there's a, there's a really good reason. And I think it's probably connected more to a uh, psychological impulse uh, than it is a, an exegetical one um, myself, but I would think that. Uh, so uh, a- anyway, yeah. I, so to get back to your earlier question, how would I, how would I pastor this person? Uh, I take him through the encounter weekend, teach him about repentance and faith. And we teach him about what, what I think the new Testament tells us to expect a normal Christian experience of God's presence to be like. And then we take some time to, to step out and, and practice some of those, some of those gifts. Um, this can sound really crazy to some people because, you know, I mean, I will lay hands on someone and pray according to, you know, first Corinthians 14, uh, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And that word earnestly desire as sometimes also translated as lust. It's like this eager, like kid at Christmas on Christmas morning when his, before his parents say it's time to open the gifts. Like he just can't wait. That that's, that should be our posture yeah. toward gifts. Zateo. It's like, a, it's like a zealous. It's yeah, a, yeah. 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 Um, uh, so it's, and a, it's definitely a continuative imperative. It's like, yeah. you should keep constantly doing this and I'm telling you to do it. Yeah. And, so yeah, and I've I always find, had trouble with people who are like, I don't, yeah, I don't really want to seek those. They're weird. And I'm like, okay, granted. Yes. You know, speaking in tongues may be one of the weirder gifts of God. A hundred percent. And you may not even want that gift. Yeah. But like the, like if, but then, you know, these same people are like, but I believe the Bible is entirely the word of God written. And I just want to obey God's word. Like, okay, what about first Corinthians 12 that says, seek the gifts of the spirit. Yeah. That's, you can't have it both ways here, (laughs) bad boy. You know? Yeah. You're literally talking about what, what we do every time we have one of these groups. Uh, So I'll open my Bible. And I, I look at the every participant, I ask them the same question. I go, okay, now you just heard, w- when I lay my hands on you and we pray, what do you want to happen? Well, you know, I don't really know. I'm going to, you know, I just want God to do whatever God wants to do. And I was like, yeah, chief feature of being God is that he always gets to do whatever he wants to do. So you wanting it or not wanting yeah. it doesn't make it happen. Um, <laughs> what do you want? Well, you know, maybe I want this gift. Okay, cool. Now open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 14 and read it for me. And then they read it. Okay, yeah. are, are you obeying that text? Or are you in sin? And that's the option. It's like, well, I'm either going to obey this. The part seeking of, part. You yeah. Mean. Yeah. Do you yeah. like reading God's word to you? First Corinthians 14. Are you earnestly desiring spiritual gifts or are you not so much? And I mean, full, like all cards on the table. I mean, I love spiritual gifts and I have a hard time obeying that text. I mean, I'm a card carrying charismatic and I don't wake up every morning, like earnestly desiring spiritual gifts. Wait, you know, I wake up every morning earnestly desiring my coffee, uh, and, you know, and, and kind of desiring to read my Bible and to pray and stuff. And, you know, and like that's part of, that's why it's, it's part of the practice. And, and what I want to help our people see, especially in a generation that's like been taught to think with our feelings instead of with our minds and, and the, you know, and we, we think something's not authentic unless we just feel it deep in our soul and all that stuff. Um, is it? No, uh, the Holy Spirit, like sometimes 
yeah, you just wake up and you're like, man, God is amazing. And I can't wait to go meet with God and, you know, go be a faithful disciple of Jesus today. But more, at least for me, more often than not, it, it's a discipline of seeking God. It's, it's a life of, of habits and micro habits that orient my life toward Jesus. And so, uh, I, I think this, this is important because you'll find a lot in more charismatic churches, um, people who, you know, largely speaking, don't like the discipline part of discipleship. And then if you go to like maybe a more John MacArthur kind of uh, church, you get people who love the disciplines and, and love to read their Bible and like are all about, you know, everything being in tidy boxes and, uh, and would rather not listen to their hearts at all. And it seems like those things are meant to go together, uh, not, not to be, not to be torn asunder and the life with the spirit is no different. So that's a long answer to your short question. How would I pastor someone who wants to is there, experience the spirit? Is, so when you, when you specifically talked about that, you, you went straight to the gifts of the spirit as outlined in first Corinthians. Sure. But we just went through Romans eight, right? So, I mean, if I imagine an encounter weekend based on Romans eight, it would be something like, do you really want to overcome indwelling sin in the con- this enslaving control the flesh has over you? Mm. And I'm going to pray for you right now, and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit in a, a new kind of way because you're going to put your faith in Him in a new kind of way. Yeah. And what's going to happen is God is going to give you the power to overcome the flesh, to have a supernatural hope in future glory, and the capacity to deal with suffering under the curse. Yeah. Yeah. That's session and that's one. Going to be incredible. Yeah. Although now you're getting me excited to go back and like edit session one. This is, uh, uh, I don't, I don't think I'd mind Romans eight enough in uh, session one. So this is inspiring, but yeah, I, I think that that's, cool. that's a critical, important point. Um, but that's kind of you are part of your goal is to say, cause one of the things I see in, in Pentecostals movements that I have been a part of is a real strong focus on the gifts of the spirit mm-hmm. and apparently a complete disconnect between that and how it's supposed to create holiness. Oh yeah, totally. in the body of Christ, <laughs> totally. And I'm yeah. like, what do you think this is for? Like, he is the Holy This is Spirit. all for us to be <laughs> like Jesus. Yes. But I, yes. I also think that when people don't have a, a strong doctrine of the Holy Spirit, their doctrine of sanctification gets weak. I think I know what you mean by that. Because if you don't believe, if yeah. you don't have a supernatural, if you don't literally have the power of God changing you, mm-hmm. you you don't change very much, which gives you a lot of motivation to focus on a view of sanctification that is so progressive that it doesn't have to go very far over the rest of your life. And it mostly gets done in glorification mm-hmm. and that therefore the only thing that you should really focus on is justification, which in some sense, like you were alluding to before is kind of like going back and thinking about your birth to imagine how you should live. Yes. And there's a sense in which you do that because your birth is also a forgiveness and a redemption, and you should go back and remember that consistently. Sure. But the work of the Spirit is meant to to do something really, really transformative. Yeah. And I don't think people really believe in that. I think that, uh, I think that you're entirely right. Um, and just as a guy who wandered through Pentecostal movements, uh, I mean, it's, it's true. Um, it's interesting how, and I think it's every movement that feels as though, yeah, sorry. Every, you know, the thing about being reformed is that you feel you can easily become Gnostic because when you when you start to really dive into the doctrines of grace and you you know you really wander through some of the more 
interesting, like, you know, mystical parts of, of the Bible. Like I, I find Romans nine, 10 and 11 to be like mystifying. And I love that part of, uh, I love that part of Romans. We just did a, like a year long teaching series in Romans and man, getting to think about what God's thinking about, like what's one of those few parts of the Bible, it can become intoxicating. And so sometimes my, my yeah. reformed friends and, and me included can feel like we we're special because we have the special knowledge, but charismatics and Pentecostals do the same thing. Uh, it's just with a different set of Gnostic beliefs, uh, the, the secret knowledge of, you know, how to, how to, you know, lay hands on people in just the right way or hear God in this particular way or, or prophesy really well. And then you get, you know, you get very weird, uh, versions of spirit-filled Christianity, you know, like you would get it like Bethel Redding or something, which is, I mean, charitably could be characterized as weird. Um, and yeah, let me, let me just define the word Gnostic for the uh, listeners. Yes. It's comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word for knowledge. And so Gnostics were people who believe that to be truly spiritual, the no- spiritual knowledge wasn't public, but there was some hidden or secret knowledge that only the initiated could possibly know. Mm-hmm. And that that was what you really needed to know to be spiritual. It's one of the reasons why in the book of Colossians, Paul spends a lot of time saying this is all completely public. Christ is public. Salvation is public. Creation is public. Everything's public. God has revealed and spoken in his son. And there is no secret knowledge you need. Yes. You need this knowledge of the gospel. So, yeah. And so Gnosticism is when you're like only, you know, only the initiated practicioning elites can do it. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, there's there's lots of versions of Gnosticism. It's OG post post modernity. It's uh, knowledge is power, you know. Uh, so if I can convince you I have some secret right. knowledge that you don't have, then uh, you'll uh, you'll obsequiously follow me and do whatever I say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, if oh, let me let me ask you this. So let me ask you my second question. We're now I don't know how far in the thing, but we're on our second question. So what as a pastor? If you're discipling people and making disciples, what is one of the most obvious or dead giveaways that a believer does not understand what it means to walk in the spirit? Like you see something in somebody's life and you're like, I need to explain this person what it means to walk in the spirit yeah. or to know the spirit. Um, fruit, li- fruitlessness. Um, that's the dead giveaway to me. Um, and fruit here, I, uh, I, it can mean a few things. Um, fruitlessness could be, uh, I have no interest in and have never, you know, uh, done the work of evangelism. I've never told anyone about Jesus and I'm not really interested in it. And I've, you know, never postured myself that way. Um, a- another e- example of fruitlessness would be like just persistent unholiness, um, persistent sin, and not the kind of persistence that's like, hey, this guy's got, you know, uh, is, is failing forward with his, you know, fight against, you know, lust or, you know, the, fear of people or something like that, but that's persistent fighting is not the same as just persistent sin. Um, one of the things we teach people is like, look, I, I don't care how much prophecy, tongues, healing, you know, teaching generosity and all that you seem to demonstrate if it doesn't come in some proportion with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so when those things are absent, um, that's the, that's a dead giveaway that the Holy spirit isn't, um, that this person isn't abiding with Christ, that he's not uh, experiencing life in the spirit. And frankly, those are the dead. I mean, I'm telling you like myself audit uh, that, that I, you know, when, when I find myself to be anxious, I, I think where the Holy spirit is, there is no anxiety. And, uh, 
anxiety is not a feature of the kingdom of God. And, and I know, at least for me, in, in my city of high achieving, high octane, you know, very self-impressed people, um, anxiety is, uh, is, is the emission of the human heart that runs on, on effort uh, and, and self-will. But peace is, is the outcome of the human heart that is running by the power of the spirit. So where there's anxiety, peace and life. Yeah. It's almost right. like you we said it. Eight, peace and life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I actually was teaching that, uh, you know, when our church kind of went into the, uh, the COVID shutdown, I, I mean, I don't know if you do this, Nick, but I follow many of my leaders on social media and, uh, <laughs> it's a, uh, I mean, I can't, I am not omniscient, but it's the closest thing to omniscience. I think any pastor has ever had. Uh, because I think even though I tell my people, like I follow you on Twitter, like I can read what you, what does the, what you belch out into the atmosphere in, in, in social media. And then, uh, and then I can see the condition of their heart and boy, I just saw anxiety everywhere. People freaking out at, you know, either the government or someone else about, about, you know, how this should be handled differently or, uh, a different form of anxiety, which is like, you know, all they're talking about is the Netflix binge that they're doing. And, uh, and I thought, oh, wow, we need to talk about anxiety and how where the spirit of God is, there is no anxiety. And uh, uh, I, I like to say anxiety you, is what it feels like. Can you connect like. the dots? Go ahead. Can you connect the dots for people about why you would say, I'm doing this next Netflix binge. That's what I've been doing in COVID. And you're like, that actually could be a way of coping with anxiety rather than a yeah. nice way to have some leisure. Yeah. Can you so, connect the dots for people? Because they might just be skeptical of that diagnosis. Yeah, because they're saying, oh, no, I'm really chill. Um, and, and yeah, so anxiety, mm-hmm. now I'm, I'm pulling a lot of, uh, let, me, let me say at the outset, I'm not talking about the, uh, like, an, an anxiety disorder. Um, that those, I think the, the diagnosis of an anxiety disorder and the common experience we all have of anxiety are not the same things, although they are related. Um, but uh, anxiety, when we experience it, we tend to, it either drives us to overfunction or underfunction. Um, overfunctioning would be like freaking out and yelling at people and, you know, uh, going to Costco and buying all of the toilet paper and, you know, all that stuff. That would be a good example of uh, overfunctioning. Uh, underfunctioning would just be kind of like, oh, it's not a big deal, you know, whatever, and just kind of laughing at all the memes and never actually engaging with the severity or seriousness of, of the situation because you know it freaks you out. Both of those are, are unhealthy responses to anxiety. Um, and, uh, you know, shocker, I tend to be more of the overfunctioner. Um, but, uh, yeah, when when those things are, are experienced, um, it is a sign that we're not experiencing the fullness of, of life with, with God, the, the Holy spirit. And, and Jesus never did that. Like he never, it, if you go back and you read the Bible or the gospels for when was Jesus over or under functioning, what you get is never like never, not once ever. Uh, and that's super interesting to me. Um, even when he's flipping tables yeah. and stuff, he's doing it in a measured intentional, like judicial way. And it's, you know, he's not just, you know, that's it, you know, kind of like, I mean, he made a whip. That's, that was the key for me. Like I've never made one, but I feel like it's got to take a minute. You've probably made whips because you're the Yeah, because it, like, it literally says he like braided a whip out of three cords or something, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm like, well, where did you get the cords? You know, it did takes you me a freaking it? hour to braid my kid's hair. 
Yeah, I'm just I, that's I, a joke. Sorry, I don't. Uh, I don't braid my children's hair uh, for obvious reasons. Your listeners can't see. I don't have hair, but they don't trust me when I touch theirs. <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes sense. All right. Um, so one of the things that even in churches that are not charismatic in the sense that they're actively seeking to see prophetic words or he- mm-hmm. consistent healing or praying for healing or speaking in tongues in normal expression of Christian expression, even within non-charismatic sort of evangelical churches, there is a big emphasis on hearing God and hearing from God. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Madison, where I pastor, there's a, a pretty significant amount of influence from the Bethel movement. Mm-hmm. Um, most people viewing it very positively who are, have been affected by it, obviously, cause they've been affected by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a really strong, you know, you can hear God's voice. You should hear God's voice. And then that it's indistinguishable. Once you've heard God's voice, just saying it in a way that's humble and encouraging is indistinguishable from what the Bible means by prophecy. And so, and that's a huge part of Christian spirituality. And although on one level, I'm sympathetic to the fact that God can do whatever he wants. God does speak to people in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And if you put together God speaking to people in the scriptures by his spirit and us having his spirit in us, mm-hmm. and the spirit is sometimes a speaking spirit, even if I mm-hmm. can't pin down a verse that says, you should hear God's voice in your heart, which I can't, I still am open to, I mean, the, the Holy Spirit is there in our hearts, leading us and teaching us and doing things, reminding us, it says in Romans or in John mm-hmm. 14, I think, or 16, I can't remember now. You know, all that kind of stuff. Like, I, I could see where you could get that idea. And and I, I know people who seem to credibly hear um, intelligible messages of the Holy Spirit rather than just experiencing illumination or aha experiences or mm-hmm. so on. <clears throat> in your um, judgment as a, as a pastor and theologian, like how big a thing is this supposed to be for us? How big a thing is hearing from God in the yeah. message kind of way? Like, like, mm. right. If, 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 right. So for me, I'm a, I'm what you might call a failed mystic. Like, I just don't, I don't tend to have experiences like that. Right. But I've also had people tell me that I have a prophetic gift. I just don't know it. Right. And I go, I go, nah, I think I'm actually, I've grown in psychological sophistication over 25 years of ministry. And sometimes it seems like I have a prophetic gift, but sometimes I don't know why I know things. Yeah. Um, right? But then other people, they feel like God is, but then you get, you get other people who are like, well, I don't know. I'm dating this guy and I feel like God told me to marry him or not. Or I feel like God doesn't want, wants me to have a season of not dating right now. And yeah. Yeah. You know, or, or a lot of anxiety. What I see in 20 somethings is a lot of anxiety. And who to marry, what to do as a job, mainly are the two big ones. And then in high school students, where to go to college. Hmm. That these big conversion experiences where you're converting a huge amount of potential in your life to a single actual is fraught with anxiety. And so people don't want to take responsibility for their own decision. And they want God to just tell them what to do so they know they get it right. Yeah. And so they want God to tell them whether to go to UW or University of Michigan. And I'm always like, I'm not sure that's how that works. Yeah. You know? So in Christian life as a whole, how do you proceed with that kind of teaching? So I I detected three questions. One was how big of a thing is hearing the the verbal um, leading of God uh, for an individual. And... So maybe I'll just, I want to pick up on that one. Um, so, yeah. So let me, let me give you a metaphor. Is the Holy Spirit like a word processing program that types stuff out that you can read? 
or is the Holy Spirit more like a spotlight that shines a light on stuff that's already there so that you go, oh. Hmm. I think it's here very important to, to use the language of the Bible. Um, and so when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he says that he's our leader, he's our helper, he's our teacher, um, and and he's a he. And this is important because I think these metaphors, uh, the best metaphor is the metaphor of a person. So the Holy Spirit is a person. And persons, we know what it's like to be led and in relationship with persons. And sometimes uh, persons talk and sometimes persons touch and sometimes persons are just present with you and you're feeling their presence. Um, you know, you would know this because you're, you're married. And so you've got this very intimate relationship with one particular person to the exclusion of all others. And over time with your wife, you've learned to respond to her communication in all kinds of ways. Um, sometimes it's a text message, right? Nick, get the milk on your way home. And other times you can simply tell by a combination of your perception of the tone in her voice and how she's carrying her body and, you know, the light in her eyes, like, how is she? And you actually know she's communicating to you something to do. And so is the Holy Spirit one who speaks? Oh, of course, all, all the time. Um, but he speaks as a person and he doesn't speak independently as a person. He speaks as a Trinitarian person. And so because he speaks as a person and a Trinitarian person, he primarily will, will have spoken in, in the, you know, in the words of, of the scriptures that he wrote. Um, and yeah, it, it is an ex like we should expect as Christians, I think, to be led by the spirit. I mean, the scriptures say, if you are led by the spirit, you'll keep in step with them. And Paul's writing that to just regular old, uneducated, mostly slave Galatians, um, not not sophisticated, you know, seminary graduates. Uh, so, yeah, we're just. I, I think I think the expectation of the normal Christian life is I, I'm going to be led by the Spirit. But what's critical, and this is where I come into a massive disagreement with uh, the acolytes of the Bethel world, is that um, the phrase "God told me" can be. Uh, has to have a big, big asterisk next to it. And the asterisk is God told me asterisk. And then you go to the bottom of the page, subject to the scriptures, subject to interpretation in the church, subject to my submission to like godly authority in my life. Uh, those, those aspects of the Lord's speech are critical because as often as not, um, the, the phrase God told me is just used as a, as a lever to get you to not argue with me. If I come to my staff tomorrow and say, guys, God told me we're going to do X because I'm their pastor and I'm their boss, we're going to do X. And if I use the phrase, God told me, then it, it's this, it's this weird power move that I think is very unhealthy. Um, so I, I think, and again, you don't, that's why I think the Bible's pretty, pretty good book. Uh, and we should read it more often because you, you don't ever hear a Paul or Peter or Luke saying, God told me X, uh, you, you'll, I mean, Luke will write. Uh, so it seemed good to the Holy spirit and to us to set aside Paul and Barnabas. You know what I mean? Like that's very mm -hmm. careful language. Like it's very thoughtful and submissive language, not, um, well, God said this. And so we're doing this. Um, and we must be very careful when we use language like that. And we must like, when we make disciples, we must be very careful. Um, 
not so careful that we Have never felt do like... what the spirit says, but the spirit speaks to us in lots of ways. He's a person and he speaks to us as persons in the church. Um, through the word, these are, I think, all critical parts. Have you felt like the Bethel movement has been particularly bad about that? I mean, my, my perception is yes, that, like, I just call it fourth, fourth ways. Okay, because the people I've interacted with that have been influenced by it haven't been super, they haven't been, like, authoritative. They, they've been, like, less so than, like, Kansas City movement third wave charismatics. Like, yeah, but I, you think like, like, but I haven't really followed their big leaders and what they say publicly. And yeah, I, I'm not, I don't hear, I know your movement. I know every nation is like, good. I know every nation probably has interacted with it more because you guys are openly charismatic than they're like, uh, that, that's like your team. Yeah. Well, it, it is. And it, and it isn't. Um, I must confess, I, I find the word care. I hate the word charismatic because I don't, I don't, I don't know what I am, Nick. I don't identify charismatic. Uh, maybe I'll start calling myself a post-charismatic. Um, what is uh, what does every nation call itself? Uh, well, y- you are now demanding of a movement that is not theological to use theological words, uh, and and that's very very difficult. <laughs> um, it, you will find within every nation, right. first, second, and third, and fourth wave charismatics, and then people like me who don't quite know, uh, who who are very critical of all of those things, um, uh, and yet very much right. believe that, that the spirit's alive and well. Um, if you want a brief comment from me on the Bethel movement, I think that, um, I think that, uh, well, first of all, I should say, I think they're Christians. Let me start with that. I, much of my mm-hmm. reformed friends are like, you know, think that they're full blown heretics and I, I, they're not heretics. <laughs> um, like they affirm the apostles creed and, and the authority of scripture, like they're not heretics. Um, but, uh, they're, they are probably a Montanist redux is my best read. Um, so Montanism for your listeners is a, is a, uh, third century, uh, movement that was condemned as heresy. Uh, uh, it was a guy named Montanus who had these two girls, uh, um, uh, Maximilla and, uh, wait for it. Pro- Proxima. I forget the other girl's name. Anyway, uh, two prophetesses. Um, and, uh, and it started off as kind of like a like a Holy Spirit renewal sort of thing, and then when you read the history of it, it sounds like the weirdest charismatic revival that you know got covered in paper in the '80s or something. Um, and then they, it got real end timesy and very like controlling, and and uh, a, a century later it was condemned as a heretical movement. But Tertullian was a Montanist, and he's the guy who gave us like the most sophisticated Trinitarian theology we have. So uh, it's a little. Uh, it's a little hard to read. And and so I I think Bethel is a little hard to read. I think that there's some really good stuff, uh, but I I worry about some of their practices. Uh, Some of their practices seem to be indistinguishable from uh, pagan magic. And I think that that's very, very problematic. All right. Well, we'll leave that there. Yeah. I've, you know, I'm back and forth, you know, sometimes I'm just kind of like, man, the music is nice. And it is nice. Like I love the, I love the idea that you can like reach your community and like, there's a lot of, I think cool, like cool things. I, when I listen to the preaching that comes out of it, I don't, it doesn't do anything for me. It's not necessarily bad. I'm just kind of like, it just sounds like you're just talking. Yeah. Cause it has that kind of, one of the things I don't like about some charismatic preachers is they think they're so in tune with the Holy spirit. They don't have to exegete the Bible. Yeah. And so they like, every time they quote the Bible, it's like out of context, it's the wrong interpretation. Yeah. And then I'm supposed to go along with the stuff that they sort of like know by the spirit. I'm like, look, the spirit's clearly not even telling you what that verse means. Yeah. Yeah. And it frustrates me because (laughs) it's just my favorite thing to remind the charismatics. Like 
the people that I like, I read their books. Maybe if you like right. this guy, the spirit, check out his book. It's yeah. a bestseller. But I, you know, but we like hosted this uh, conference called Power and Love Conference, which was does it was run by some Bethel Associated people, mm-hmm. and it was at, I had at my church because the charismatic folks in town wanted me to help. And I mean, it's basically like go out in the street and just pray for people, and if they're yeah. hurt, pray for healing. If they're sad, pray for their relationships and pray for them, and talk about Jesus and lead people to Christ. But with but like God, we show love and pray for power. Yeah, right. That I thought I'm it was into. great. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, some of this, but then like one of the guys was like, oh, listen, Jesus was always only operating the Holy Spirit. Like what he did just is a man operating the Holy Spirit. And I was like, yeah, but I think your Christology might be off a little too. Cause I think he was also like literally also God at the same time. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm with that. I'm with that. He was one with the spirit. He was operating the spirit under the direction of the father. It was a very Trinitarian ministry in his incarnation. Yes. But he's still God. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think you can, it's not that I don't even think that's necessarily wrong. I just don't think you can say that. Yeah. You have to. So this would be a good example of some of my criticisms. Cause that, that's called a, uh, I, I read, I've read 13 books on spirit Christology in the last two years. Uh, and uh, also that I can, just say for my dissertation that I read them and I don't like them <laughs> and so for, for a footnote on one page in, in my dissertation. Uh, and, and so spirit Christology is kind of a, it's like a working backwards of trying to understand Jesus through the spirit. And, uh, and yeah, and it generally lands on a view of Jesus that is a, a, a heresy called adoptionism, uh, which is this idea that Jesus was a really great guy. And so God said, I'll have him. And Jesus was basically just a, a guy uh, fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it, it is true to say Jesus was a guy fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's just not the whole truth. <laughs> Jesus is a guy fully empowered by the Holy Spirit, comma, who is also fully God. <laughs> and uh, I do think the gospel writers go out of their way to indicate that most of what Jesus did seems to have been through the empowerment of the Spirit, um, especially in the Gospel of John, I think this is one of John's like big agenda items, um, because he wants to say. I mean, and he constantly says something to the order of like, "You can do this," and and then he breathes on them. There's that weird, you know, breathe on the disciples thing at the end. Um, I think that's true. Yeah. I like that Bethel's talking about that, um, but I I do wish that they yeah, would, but uh, I don't say more. <laughs> don't you also don't you also see as a theme in the Gospels that the actions of Jesus are meant to show the the those who have ears to hear and eyes to see that he is he is the Christ the son of god. Yes. Do you think that yes. that is still like he is the we could tell he's the Christ the son of god because he's because god has so chosen him and empowered him by the spirit. But mm-hmm. even if that's the case it it's it has to be a different kind of empowering. Yes. Then Yes. He could have just empowered Nicodemus. So Nick, I'm going to do a shameless book plug um here. Uh my shameless book plug is uh, I, I uh, have a my, my newest book is coming out in September and it's called Stop Taking Sides and it's uh, eight it's eight uh, pairs of biblical truths that we have to hold in tension because the Bible affirms them both and uh, and if we hold them in tension we get we get a virtue um, and so that's that's what the book is about it's really exciting to me uh, and I, I really enjoyed writing it and I think in the the writing of the book was sort of a, a, 
thinking out loud for me uh, that I got to then refine and refine and refine because I've, I'm deeply convinced that the Bible is like the ultimate judo master. Um, it, It is messing with us and it knows it's messing with us. So it'll say things mm-hmm. like, God is crazy sovereign and you are profoundly responsible for your own actions. And we take that as a bug in the system that we've got to like a, a problem we have to solve by like balancing. And so we, you always get people like, how do you balance what the Bible says about this and that? And Jesus never balanced stuff. He dialed everything to 11 and then was like, here you go. <laughs> uh, he you know, took the Mosaic law, dialed it to 11 and also took, you know, embodies grace and dials that to 11. He's like, that, you know, and, and the Bible knows it's doing that to us. And so this is, I think, just another example of your question. I say, let's say with Jesus. Yeah. You get a man who is super, super, very much obviously human and in, in like scandalous ways. And then also the Bible seems to be going out of its way to say, he's not just a human. <laughs> he's very much God. There's no one like him. Uh, don't think that you're going to, you know, walk up to the top of a mountain and transfigure, for, for instance. Uh, I don't believe that Paul ever uh, gave indication that we should have the spiritual gift of uh, going super Saiyan uh, and turning, you know, glowing in the dark or something. Uh, so, so there, are, there, there's both, and I think it's really hard for me. It's and it's really hard for most of us to hold two ideas in our brains at the same time that don't feel like they they should go together. But the Bible is constantly forcing us to do that. And yeah, with Jesus and the Spirit, that's one of the one of the tougher ones. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask you two more questions and then we'll be done. The first is what, so since you've been doing the dissertation thing, Mm -hmm. what is something you just did not clearly did not understand about the Holy spirit when you started and -hmm. you feel like you, like you got a hold of it now. Um, what can I, what can I learn that I don't have to do a dissertation to know? (laughs) I have, I did not appreciate, and I don't think I say this with a little trembling because I don't think I've gotten a hold of it. <laughs> um, but I see it, and uh, and I want to get a hold of it. I, I did not appreciate how much the work of Jesus was to re- recover humanity as it was meant to be. So. Mm-hmm. Kind of the angle of my dissertation is to say, okay, Jesus, you know, is second Adam. He's the perfect prophet, priest, and king. So I'm taking like three different Christologies, basically mashing them together and saying, okay, the spirit enabled this. So what does that mean for us? Okay. And what does the Bible seem to say about the spirit empowering Jesus to, to accomplish these things? And what should we understand? Our, our takeaway from that to be. And I, I did not fully understand how integrated Jesus life was with God, the father by means of the spirit, like in the presence of constant companionship with the Holy spirit and how that's that Trinitarian life should be and, and can be something that I can increasingly experience. Uh, that I think is is the is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, 
and and the goal of discipleship and the goal of you know Romans eight and Galatians five and First Corinthians twelve and fourteen and Romans twelve because uh, all these gifts and fruits and and resisting of sin that the Spirit enables and uh, that's all wonderful all of that's going to go away when when finally we're we're fully integrated with with the Godhead in God's new world and uh, and and that's what all that's working toward um, that I didn't see okay and uh, that's cool. let me. Let me see if I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It sounds like what you're saying is something like Irenaeus was right that the glory of God is manfully alive. That there's something about the the Ephesians 4 where it says um, that we are being sort of remade in our created humanity and true righteousness and holiness. Mm-hmm. And that that's the goal even by the spirit. So the spirit isn't making us more ethereal or more immaterial or more mystical. The spirit is working in those who have inherited flesh and who will be resurrected in bodies mm-hmm. to remake what God's original intention was, which was an embodied soul, a fully composite being that is to image God. Yeah. But that really can only happen with a Trinitarian relationship toward God that our, if our, as our discipleship becomes more truly Trinitarian mm-hmm. and in that sense, even more paradoxical, it will make us more fully human because, because that's what, why Jesus, does that make us more fully human? Because that's the way Jesus lives. And I think that is the gift he died to give us. I think that's the inheritance. Um, you know, when, when we read about the inheritance laid up for you, you know, like, you know, I has seen no ears heard, you know, we, your eyes and like streets of gold mansions for everybody. And it's like, no stupid. If the streets are made of gold, that means gold is as valuable as asphalt. That's the point. <laughs> the, like the, it's not about the gold and it's not about the mansions. It, it's about like, there's going to be something about life with God in his forever future. That's so integrated that we'll still have all the cool stuff like gold and wealth and mansions. Like that'll be neat, but it will be in its proper location in in relationship to, to, um, to that new reality. And so we'll walk on gold. We won't wear it. Um, and it, it seems to me, Jesus, humanity, he's living this. He's shown us what it's like. And in his death and resurrection, he's not just paying for our sins and saving us though. He is. And that's, I mean, un- unspeakably wonderful. He's sending the spirit so that we can actually start to walk in that thing for which he died and lived, um, which, which is this reintegration of all things. Um, not, not like not, um, in some sort of strange, uh, like mystical Eastern view, like where we all become one, that's not it, but we, we're, we're reintegrated sin, like just disintegrates, right? It tears things apart. It, uh, breaks things up. And Jesus, it's shocking to me how by the spirit, how even how mentally and emotionally healthy he was. I mean, I've told you personally, and I don't mind your listeners knowing, like uh, my family and I have been dragged very unwillingly over the last two or three years through uh, the world of mental and emotional health. Uh, And we, we have not enjoyed it at all. (laughs) I, I, before that had no desire to ever know anything about uh, psychology uh, and uh, 
but now I know a lot about it, uh, quite by, uh, quite by necessity. And it's shocking to me how healthy Jesus was, um, and how personally integrated he was and how even that is, is an outcome of the, the Holy Spirit's work in his life. Not, not just some mystical ethereal thing, though that's fine and wonderful, but Jesus built furniture empowered and in the presence of the spirit in right relationship with the father. I mean, he swung a hammer for most of his life, right? Doing, I assume, we all assume the work of his adopted dad. Like, that's amazing to me. And I, like, I don't, I don't have like a therefore yet. I just, I'm still like, huh, how about that? I wonder what that would be like. Um, and I think that's, mm-hmm. that's the real end goal. Uh, and that, that sounds, that sounds like a really cool future to be a part of. Uh, sorry. That's a very long answer to your short question. Yeah, it's kind of long, but I thought, I, yeah, I, some things you have to talk around before you can really. Yeah, I mean, I, it's unformed it in, in, my, took, in my words yeah. because it's still unformed in my head. Yeah, that's why dissertations take 10 years to write, right? Um, okay, I so rebuke that second prophecy. Left. It's going to take two more years <laughs> or my wife's going to leave me. <laughs> no, man. No, um, I, need, I need this to wrap up before the end of 2021. <laughs> okay, so um, one of the things you said about the presence of the Spirit is that a person who understands the presence of the spirit seeks to make disciples. Mm-hmm. That's probably the most offensive thing you said on the podcast, right? Oh, it's like, is it? if you oh, have the spirit, you're going to try to make disciples. Oh yeah. Cause people hate evangelism. It's just, yeah. it's just so humiliating. It's like sales, you know, it's like it's humiliating yeah. rejection, you know? And so people don't want to be told that it's fundamental to being a believer. Right. Yeah. And so when you They're say, like it's one thing to say, too? like you yeah, should be increasingly patient. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I think it's very human. Right. And so if you say, look, you need to be increasingly temperate in your attitude and increasingly patient and, and, and have love or joy, they'll be like, oh yeah. And you're like, and it also means that you would do the things God is doing in the world, i.e. his mission, which is to make disciples. So if, if you're in the spirit, in the mind of the spirit, making disciples is a big part of your mind. And people will be like, that's, bad like can you just mm-hmm. you want to press in on that double down on it a little bit yeah let me let me quadruple down something on it. um if you're not interested in making disciples you have demonstrated that you probably aren't one because jesus commandment at the end of all four gospels and he doubles it up in luke luke's work luke and acts uh mm-hmm. is that discipleship is is the mission um and so i'm a deeply deeply convinced that uh a church community a family a a human that thinks about their christian life and doesn't think about it in terms of discipleship or thinks of discipleship wrongly uh we're, we're we're very misaligned um discipleship is not the thing that happens after evangelism uh discipleship includes evangelism because when Jesus said, go make disciples, he didn't mean go find some crappy Christians and make them less crappy. Uh, he, he meant go, go, go publish the news. Go to um, all, na- all the nations, even where there's not one disciple yet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's implicit. Yeah. And, and so people will push back. Well, I don't have the gift of evangelism and I'm not aware of the Bible calling evangelism a gift. 
um, anywhere. I am aware of many places where it calls it a fruit. And actually, I, I try to help people see that evangelism is something they actually do all the time. Um, because whenever they have a good experience, they talk about it. Like C.S. Lewis said, joy is incomplete until it is expressed. And I, you know, so I just said, well, what was the last thing that happened? What was, what was your last great meal? This is what it usually works. And they're like, oh, I went to this restaurant and it was amazing. And you should bob it about it. Like, See, you just did evangelism. You just good news to me about the cool new, you know, Mexican joint down the road. And cause you had an experience with it and now you want me to share in it. And that's all. That's all that is, is, hey, I, I have this amazing experience. Now, you've been convinced by a culture and by the enemy uh, that you, that's, that's, it's never okay to share that kind of good news. Um, and that's just a lie. That's just not true. Um, and, and so we have to work really hard to, to not believe that um, and to disassociate. Even if a lot of people believe it, including the people you're trying to good news, yeah. right? Like, yeah. It's still but, not true. Yeah. But the, you know, I, I've got to be honest. I mean, I'm a pretty bombastic person. And so I, I elicit strong reactions in others. And it has never once happened to me ever in 16 years of ministry that I've had someone like angrily reject my offer to share the gospel with them ever or angrily reject my offer to pray for them. Um, now they do reject being treated like a number or a project. And so I think when we think of evangelism as this like, uh, like set of judo moves that we've got to go like find an unwilling participant just to feel like we did right. our judo practice. Like, well, yeah, that that's all. People don't like to be that. handled. No, uh, yeah. ever. But you know, we're, we're just talking about loving Jesus in front of other people. I mean, is, is all one definition of, of evangelism. Um, right. Which do, don't you think that that kind of flows out of the greater work of the mind of the spirit, where the more integrated you become, yeah. The more fully human, the more the the spirit is working in all parts of you, the more naturally then you would talk about God. Because 100%. God is just naturally like he's part of the ecology of your whole personhood. And yes. so it's just gonna come out of your environment. Like yes. anything about you is just gonna be like I remember my brother I talked to my brother when he was an undergrad and I said, Of all the people in the geology department, how many have you shared the gospel with? And he said, Well, I mean, all of them. I was like, Wait, hmm. all of them? He's like well, I mean, we're in lab for hours talking. I mean, how long mm. can someone talk to me before that just kind of comes out? Yeah, I uh, see that. That's great. You know? Yeah, that 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 I think right and there so, is, is huge. Yeah. All right. Um, can you give us a final thing on hope for the church in these days that like people can come to Christ and Jesus Church can be victorious, and that mm-hmm. we are not just because we're in secular cities, it doesn't mean that we're doomed to decline as the people of God. Yeah, I can. Um, I feel like people I, need to hear that. I think, well, I, I'm not good at, uh, um, at, at BS. I'm a terrible liar. So, uh, I don't, I don't do that whole like inspirational talk. Uh, just that doesn't kind of seep out of my pores. So what I'm about to say, isn't that, um, I 100% believe and will stake my, uh, blood and treasure on the the belief that we are about to walk into our greatest days as as the people of God. I think that the global pandemic of COVID nineteen and everyone's various responses to it have torn off a fig leaf that was 
very uh, carefully constructed by technology and wealth and power, uh, all of which we've experienced in unparalleled ways um, to previous generations of humans. We're the richest, most powerful, most well-fed, healthiest humans that have ever existed. And we've spent really since the end of World War II, really trusting in that in, you know, in at least Western civilization. And uh, COVID-19 has torn all of that off of us and shown us how easy those things with a tiny little strand of uh, wonky RNA wrapped in a, in a little cell membrane uh, called COVID-19, how that can all just be torn away. And um, I believe if we will press into this moment in faith and, and hope, we're going to see more people really turn to Jesus, not just big full churches and big full budgets. I think even the way we measure church success is going to be adjusted um, because some of that needed to be torn off too. Um, but I think that we are going to see more people meet Jesus and we're going to see the footprint of the global church expanded in a way that we've never seen before. Um, so I, I think this is going to be our finest hour. And, you know, those those finest hours are rarely experienced without suffering. Um, and I don't think our suffering is over, but, um, but that's okay. Because I think that millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people are going to meet Jesus through this. That'd be great. I agree. Maybe we could talk with you another time about your plan for your church being involved in that, like how you're going to lead the believers that exist in your city at -hmm. your church, at least to be part of that happening. Yeah. To quote Romans 10, because you know, how will they still believe if somebody doesn't bring them the message? Mm -hmm. Right. Even in this milieu. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah. I I know know something (laughs) of how, yeah, I know something of how busy you are with your multiple children, only one wife, but um, church and stuff and so on yep. and degrees and whatever. So I really appreciate the time you took to talk to us. And yeah, um, I would like to get you back on and talk about the story of your church, because I think churches in cities like Boston that have prevailed in leading people to Christ are very important stories. And I think that people in my church and in Madison need to be inspired by the fact that people come to faith in these cities and they, they come to faith really seriously in these cities and they become, they become really powerful believers. And I I think that, I think that we just need reminding and sometimes it's good to cross pollinate that hope back and forth. So hopefully we'll be able to get you on again in not too long. Yeah, dude. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. 
We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.